0: The most important thing you can do is insulate a stock of housing from the market forces. When you have an international community vying for the real estate in this town, it is critical you start to control the cost and and also try to preserve it in perpetuity. Failure is not an option. How do we get there?
1: and welcome to Travel Beyond, where we partner with leading destinations to explore the greatest challenges facing communities and the planet, surfacing their most inspiring solutions. I'm David Archer, Editorial Manager at Destination Think, and I'm recording from the village of Daging Geeds, British Columbia, in Haida Gwaii, the territory of the Haida Nation.
2: And I'm Rodney Payne, CEO at Destination Think. I'm recording this from my home in Revelstoke, British Columbia, a city on the territory of four First Nations, the Sinaiks, the Sushwetmik, the Silks, and the Tunaha. On this show, we look at the role of travel and choose to highlight destinations that are global leaders. We talk to the change makers who are addressing regenerative travel through action in their communities, often from the bottom up.
1: And we're actively looking for the best examples of efforts to regenerate economies, communities, and ecosystems, so please do reach out if you have a story to share with us and our story today is that we have a conversation about a topic on everyone's mind, housing. And we'll hear from a former Colorado state senator who is the current president of Habitat for Humanity in the Roaring Fork Valley, Gail Schwartz. She's a longtime advocate for housing solutions in Colorado and in the Aspen area. Gail has a lot of great insights to share about housing. She's been at this for a while. She says that an incredibly high percentage of Aspen homes sit vacant currently with absentee landlords, you know, people that are coming in seasonally, maybe for skiing or for other vacations. And, and I have to ask the question, is this kind of inevitable at a ski resort, especially one that's so popular?
2: It's hard to say, but if a place is in the spotlight or on the map from a, you know, a visitor perspective and tourism is often the thing that, you know, brings people's attention to a place that we're sort of setting in motion a pathway uh, where Aspen may be a really good extreme example of, of where we're headed in other places. If there's no mechanisms in place to protect homes for people who live and work in the community, then the real risk is that the price of those homes... Uh, Gets decoupled from the local economy, uh, and then all kinds of issues emerge.
1: Right. I guess we shouldn't assume that there has to be a certain outcome. Um, It just seems so. um, It it seems like it's it's a widespread problem. Gail also mentioned some of the forward thinking leaders from the past in Aspen who, some decades ago, acted to protect part of Aspen's housing stock from market forces or speculation. And I believe she said that 30% of the homes or the the housing stock in Aspen is protected. Um, Do you think more places and especially busy destinations will need to set aside housing this way?
2: Yeah, I think that there's obviously a group of people who decades ago had a massive amount of foresight in Aspen to protect that 30%. And I think if you talk to people in Aspen, they'll say that clearly there's a problem even today, despite having 30% protected. But what would have happened if they didn't and how extreme would the situation be? We really need to think in communities around the world about the role of homes and whether they're distinct from houses and look at different ways that we might be able to make sure that the people living and working and building a community have a place to live
1: yeah one way to look at it is that housing is a human right everyone needs a place to live and you know I think I think that ideas like setting aside some of the the market for people to live in no matter their income or you know at a certain level of income that's protected it kind of reflects that idea of housing being an obvious necessity that communities are going to need and Aspen will need in the future too
2: and I think the impetus for it can be you know, benevolent due to political ide- ideology or it could also be self-interest as well because if you don't have homes for the people emptying trash cans and plumbing toilets and other things, the pain gets very, very real very quickly, right? You know, in Aspen, people are commuting two hours each way to come and work jobs and the traffic that builds up it's it's a very real and very visceral example of a trajectory that a lot of places are on and other places have the chance to learn from you know those who go first.
1: Yeah, that's right. And with that, let's now go and hear your conversation with former Colorado State Senator Gail Schwartz, currently the president of Habitat for Humanity in the Roaring Fork Valley.
2: Can you tell me your name? Mm-hmm.
0: My name is Gail Schwartz.
2: And what you're currently doing.
0: I'm currently the president of Habitat Humanity, Roaring Fork Valley. It is an affiliate that uh, spans from Aspen to parachute on the western slope of Colorado.
2: What do you love most about this part of the world?
0: I've been here 50 years, all of it. it is, uh, it's is—it's a remarkable place that spoke to my soul in terms of uh, the environment, the climate, Uh, the people that are part of our community um, it's it's exceptional
2: what makes the community so special
0: community the definition of community has certainly evolved and I'll just very briefly say 50 years ago Aspen and a little town called basalt 20 miles down the road was a long-distance call so we were all just little hamlets dotting the region up and down our river valleys now community needs to be redefined from Aspen to Parachute because we're so interrelated in terms of our workforce, our jobs, our economies. So um, community, how do I define it you know, kind of geographically, but how do we define it in terms of where's the buy-in and and who? Who do we have at the table that's helping preserve what we're calling community?
2: You've had a fascinating career and a lot of that you know your whole life has been dedicated towards you know in one way or another um, helping people to find housing. Can you give me a short summary uh, of what you've done from resort planning to politics and you know more recently?
0: Well thank you. Um, I actually I was a partner in a ski area design firm um, 48 years ago called Snow Engineering and that firm designed resort communities specifically ski areas all over North America. And we brought the, an office from Franconia, New Hampshire to Aspen, and we started to really invest in designing and redesigning, they call it retrofitting, ski areas in the Western United States and Canada. So I was uh, the component that actually worked on the feasibility and the marketing, and when you design a ski area or retrofit a skieria, you talk about how many, you start with how many lift tickets can you sell? And then that translates into how many restaurant seats and how many beds, and how many square feet of commercial, but it also translates into how many employees. How many employees does it take to make this a viable economy and a viable resort? So looking at that holistically is critical. That was part of my work that led me into more consulting, but then also being director of development for the, the aspen pitkin County Housing Authority. And that housing authority at that time was really beginning to take on the tough issues when it came to zoning, it came to deed restrictions, and really pioneered many of the concepts around housing. And at that four years, brought in line 800 units to start to house and stabilize the workforce. From there, I was either an elected or appointed office for the next 25 years, including commissioner of higher education, regent, and then went to the Colorado State Senate for two terms. And that has been uh, really an an important juncture for me to be able to take rural issues into a legislature where rural communities are so underrepresented. That is really key. When 80% of your population as it is in Colorado is on the eastern slope, where the economy is and where the industry is. But you have 20% in this big donut around the urban areas that is really underrepresented. Most importantly, we have 80% of the water. So it does give us a little bit of leverage when it comes to horse trading down at the Capitol.
2: It's very brave to get into politics. (laughs) What was the driving issue for
0: you? Passion. Uh, Every step of the way, had I I known, back I would be sitting in the Senate chambers? Absolutely not. It is that passion that really took me one step to the other, helped create the education foundation and you name it, these different components to what makes a community and then looking at how to be impactful and how to to make change and how to to move issues to, to some degree of resolution.
2: Affordable housing is definitely a passion for you. Mm-hmm. Could you give us a short recap of Aspen's housing story?
0: So ironically, I've come full circle now, But it and it is um, back in the early mm-hmm. 70s, 80s, Aspen was looking at the fact that um, we needed to have an employee base, a stable employee base, and how do you do that? And a very innovative, visionary leadership said, we're going to ask the development community that of all the free market units that are coming online, a certain percent has to be carved out for permanent residents and permanent housing, that 30%. So that metric was a really important piece along with deed restrictions that require people to live and work in the community, have certain price caps, have certain appreciation caps. So it would always remain affordable. The most important thing you can do is insulate a stock of housing from the market forces. When you have an international community vying for the real estate in this town, it is critical you start to control the cost and and also try to preserve it in perpetuity. So back in the day maybe there are four thousand employees in, in Aspen. Now they're twenty four thousand and housing has not kept pace.
2: What's that? cost of a free market single-family home in Aspen at
0: the moment? It's obscene. One property just sold for $60 million. I don't know. You can hardly keep track because it changes monthly what the average sales price is and versus the median sales price versus the medium income. So it is. Um, there's such demand for this real estate in this community because of the lifestyle, uh, the incredible environments, um, the arts and all of those benefits. But what has happened is uh, it has really driven out what I would call the community that we were all associated with back in those early days because we didn't come here with much, but we all made it work and we all made the community work and we were devoted to the community. So now it is just made it uh, exacerbated the issue, and it is that ripple effect. It's not only Aspen, it's that larger definition of community. It's impacting basalt and Carbondale and Glenwood and moving down valley to Newcastle and silt and rifle and parachute to Debec. Our workforce every day can commute up to four hours a day. That, this becomes a social justice issue. You don't build an economy on the backs of families and individuals because of the cost they are paying to support uh, a resort industry.
2: So on the one hand, there was incredible foresight early on to preserve 30% of inventory for the people who are building and maintaining the community. On the other hand, even though we have that, there's this massive divide between free market housing and you know, availability for the the people who are now running the growth engine, and people are commuting up to four hours. What what's the impact of that?
0: Well, as I said, this is a social justice issue, and um, really laying this issue at the feet of the industries and the businesses and the communities that need to have that workforce, and so it is. It's a tremendous. So how do you address it? And I think that Habitat, myself, has been really spearheading conversations around, we're at a very critical point. It is a crisis. So let's identify the solutions and opportunities.
2: But it sounds like for a while there, preserving 30% really worked. When did it get to a tipping point?
0: I would say COVID. COVID where people wanted to take their laptops and they wanted to leave some urban area and go to some place with some reasonable connectivity. And so what happened was, there was a large part of our housing stock that really functioned as seasonal housing. That they were rental units, um, people owned property and they rented them. So two things happened. Those properties either sold, and we know from data 80% sold to out-of-state buyers or out-of-the-community buyers. And secondly, then we had the short-term rentals. So if you had a property and you were renting it to a, a nurse or a teacher or somebody else in the community, it became far more lucrative to to rent that property short-term. So what happened, the housing stock shrunk. So the 30% were the deed restricted, uh, really reliable housing stock, uh, and then all of a sudden we saw that other part of the housing stock that wasn't necessarily regulated start to shift and shift away from uh, the the workforce and affordability, due to a couple of those factors.
2: So, you've got some important work going on and raising, you know, constantly raising conversations about the issue. When you, when you think about the landscape on the Western Slope and in and around Aspen, what's currently being done or worked on? What are the different things that are being worked on?
0: As solutions? Yeah. Minimal. Don't, they don't begin to approach. So right now, Aspen has the APSHA, this Aspen-Picken County Housing Authority, about 3,200 affordable units SOMAS has its own stock. But as I said, when you're trying to capture the ability to serve uh, 24,000 employees, 3,200 doesn't begin to, to address the issue. But also people have to realize it's not a zero-sum game because what we don't have in that 3,200 units is the ability for mobility within that housing stock. So you may have a teacher, literally, that bought in 40 years ago, taught our children how to read and have them in kindergarten. But that teacher is now retired in a unit that has a capped appreciation, but she has three bedrooms. So you have a lot of grousing about, oh, the bedrooms aren't being maximized. No, we're not providing opportunities and alternatives to the people in the housing stock to maybe downsize or move into something that's really more appropriate for a retired individual. So what are we doing? We're not diversifying our housing stock. We're not increasing the numbers. We do have a new project coming online here in Aspen. Uh, what What we're more about what we're not doing is bringing engaging and providing incentives for the private sector to be partners in this because it's so lucrative in the free market. But we also need governmental policy. We need that same visionary leadership that is going to flip this equation and now make 70% of the new housing stock affordable and 30% for the free market. Currently in the county, 30% of the housing is for is occupied by locals. 70% of the housing, literally the equation worked, is, is owned by absentee owners. That's an industry. Every time you build a free market house, you're driving more need for more jobs and more workforce. So it's, so what are we doing? It's what are we not doing? So we're not having the right governmental policies. We're not creating incentives for the private sector to be part of the solution. Also the philanthropic community needs to understand that as much as they love the dance and the music and all these great wonderful assets they also need to be investing in what stabilizes those nonprofits it's called housing
2: and so bringing it back to policy if I could make you the benevolent dictator of the region for a week (laughs) right of the of the the area broadly speaking and I'll give you a magic wand what would you do what what levers would you put in place
0: queen for the day I would flip the housing equation and make the lion the majority, call it sixty percent, seventy percent, but it's not ten percent. It's what some of our neighboring counties have in place, a ten percent incentive for local housing or a twenty. Let's flip that equation. We have enough free market housing. It is not an industry that's at risk. That what we have an economy that's at risk, so I would Put in place the incentives from governmental policy, and and incentives for the private sector to be, to start to invest. So, so those are, I think, of the end opinions.
2: And I'm assuming this isn't a an obscure issue that people aren't aware of. What's the the barrier for policies like those? Why why aren't they rapidly getting put in place?
0: Leadership, lack of visionary leadership. We had, well people going back 50 years we had three county commissioners that down zoned rural Pitkin county that made this place the attractive place it is because they they put in place those tough questions and looked long term at what what this community can be that we had a growth management plan all those things have only now (laughs) brought us to where we are today because it's so attractive and so I will say visionary leadership, um, taking on the tough issues,
2: courage. It sounds like, right? Courage.
0: Yeah. You know, um, it's not courage. It's just willingness to to believe in and be believe in what you what you're there for, sitting at a council table or sitting in a commissioner's seat. Just just believe in it and do and step up.
2: Right. Having been in um, public office for a long time, where do you where do you find that that drive to to push through the hard things?
0: I would say, you know, running for mayor of Aspen it's a whole different ballgame. But I've run in over half the geography of the state twice for elected office: once for Congress and one for our governing board of the university and then ran in one of the largest senate districts in the country that's where you your feet are held to the fire and that's where you start to see the challenges in communities and you intrinsically adopt and understand those needs so that's where we where, where it wasn't it wasn't fun it's It's important, but I wouldn't call it fun to run for elected office, either in the state or in the region or for Congress. But when you get there, you are held accountable for those commitments you made in front of that small group in center Colorado. You, you're held accountable to those communities that are suffering from no schools, no connectivity to their hospitals to no transportation, to no economy. You are held accountable and you you show up in that chamber with a commitment and a passion to get the work done.
2: In our very tumultuous and polarized current political environment, where are you seeing hope and inspiration in terms of the type of leadership we're talking about?
0: I think that people should recognize that rural communities um, really people are faced with bread and butter issues. It's called schools, healthcare, uh, and Main Street, businesses on Main Street. I think people can come together around those issues and the well-being of their communities. So my Senate district represented the wealthiest zip code in the nation and the poorest. So it was really understanding that we all had something in common. Let's talk about what we agree on, not what we disagree on. And let's start to forge solutions and opportunities just like we can do here. What do we agree on? How do we find solutions? How do we start to put those solutions in place?
2: That really is a fascinating perspective you've lived with for a long time to represent and think about The wealthiest and the poorest all it's in such close proximity and it's it's really ground zero for the divide that you know in abstract many of us are thinking about and grappling with Um, and and obviously like housing being the key part of that issue
0: so true it doesn't matter if you're in a wealthy resort or you're in a community that um, again one of the poorest community because there's a need for housing there as well. And we can learn from each other. We need to be humble enough to learn from each other.
2: Do you think that initiatives like what you're doing with Habitat for Humanity are essential to address the systemic failures that we're experiencing?
0: Yeah. We we, we need to be we need to stay on it. We need to be committed and we need to stay on it. We're forming working groups they are gonna be uh, grappling with three, those three topics, governmental policy, philanthropy, and, and public-private partnerships. So we're going to start momentum behind those concepts, and we're going to come back in a year. It's not an easy undertaking, but we won't have an economy. We, we won't, It's not viable. No business, I won't say no, very few businesses can hire anyone from outside of this community. You know, they first check for the pulse, and then they say, do you have, a, do you have housing? If not, the interview is over. But, but if we're going to really be able to have a, a diverse economy, a diverse workforce, we need to be able to, again, embrace people that are willing to come here and, and live here and, and be, be part of this country, be part of the school district. Live and work in the same community. This is what is tearing us apart. When your teachers or your snowplow drivers or your nurses or your doctors cannot live a practical distance from their work, they can't serve the economy. And also when that four hours a day is spent in the vehicle, they're not part of their children's lives, they're not part of the the volunteering in the community or work or showing up at the school. We're paying a price and it's too, too big a price.
2: So, looking five years out, how do you define success for what you're working on?
0: It is, um, how do we stabilize? We'll have, can we have a, will we be having a different conversation that is not fraught with uh, no business can hire anyone, that no, nobody can afford anything that's remotely practical near where they work. And then, um, and then also the, the fact that it's, it's preserving quality of life. Right now, I would say we have diminished the quality of life of our workforce. People are leaving. So even at Habitat, we've had three individuals that just left our, our restore. You know, we have, over, we have almost 30 employees there to move to other states that are more affordable. There are other options for people that are affordable. Um, And they're maybe not as fancy as this and they don't have as many 14ers, but they're affordable and they can raise their children and there's a place for them to live. So I'd say the stability of the labour force is, is really important.
2: Are there any places in the world that you think have gotten it right in terms of housing? Where do you find inspiration?
0: Well, we were on the the leading edge of it. And I think many communities emulated our our process. It doesn't come to mind because most communities are struggling with this issue. And what I would like to um, hope is that we can again be a leader on this issue because we're at this really pivotal point, a real crisis. We don't have a choice. Failure is not an option as I keep writing op-eds in the paper, failure is not an option. So um, yeah, I, I think that um, hopefully there's there's the, the will to, to make a difference here. And Habitat is just, we're just, you know, part of the solution but when you, we are short 5000 homes to adequately house our workforce it's a big question how do we get there
2: it feels like i get a window into the future having the privilege to come here and see what's going on and see how extreme you know pricing and commute times can become and There's a lot of other places that think their current reality is bad, but this is sort of looking at how bad it could get. What do you think the world needs to learn from Aspen and what advice would you give to other people in policy or social organisations trying to address the externalities of growth?
0: Well, I do think that um, we don't need to have big brother, big governmental, you know, heavy-handed solutions because we can encourage through policy and through our code public-private partnerships. We can have tools as a nonprofit. We have tools at our disposal. Private sector has tools at their disposal. I would say, let's find ways to marry those, that capability and start to bring more housing online. That, That can be a blend of, you know, again, look at the housing spectrum, homelessness to single family home ownership. But how do we find incorporating Uh, where the need is in in that spectrum and start to intersect it. So you can combine rental housing and, and again, speaking to that mobility with, again, some entry-level deed-restricted housing and then move into what we call resident-owned housing. Create enough housing stock so there is mobility and there's solutions and, and do not, in my opinion, tie housing to a person's job. That for me is when you, when you think of stabilizing a family, stabilizing children, stabilizing a community, that you need to have people, I believe in home ownership, it's the American dream. But to tie, especially a home that's owned, to someone's job, um, I, I feel that is undermining of the, uh, of the individual and, and their future success.
1: This has been Travel Beyond, presented by Destination Think. This season of the podcast is sponsored by Aspen Chamber Resort Association. You can find previous episodes of Travel Beyond and more information about this episode at destinationthink.com blog. My co-host is Rodney Payne. This episode has been produced and has theme music composed by me, David Archer. Danny Garapi recorded this season's interviews with Rodney on site in Aspen. Sarah Raymond Debuy is co-producer. Lindsay Payne, Annika Rotiola, Katie Schreiner, and Kaylee Wallace provided production support. You can help more people find our show by subscribing to future episodes and by leaving a rating and review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Next time, we'll speak with Crystal Logan, Vice President of Aspen Community Programs and Engagement at the Aspen Institute.
0: I think inside rooms where people are actually talking about solving issues, that's where the hope is.
1: See you then. And one last note about Aspen.
0: I'm Eliza Voss, and I should note that we are recording in Aspen, Colorado, the ancestral territory of the Uncompahgre tribe of the Ute Nation. We honor the inherent stewardship Native people have for the land, waters, and air that our residents and visitors continue to have the
1: privilege to revel in.